Yeah, it's a love defined by scripture, which in human terms doesn't always feel loving because it isn't always affirming. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. This week we begin the last chapter of Galatians with a look at the first five verses of chapter six. In our passage last week, Paul reminded the believers again that they had been set free in Christ, but this time he warned them not to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He gave examples of the deeds of the flesh, exposing attitudes and behaviors that naturally come from those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He contrasted those deeds with the fruit of the Spirit that ought to mark those who walk by Him. Paul told the church that loving the brothers fulfills the law of Christ and that if they walk by the Spirit, they will not carry out the desires of their flesh. In the last section we looked at, Paul's emphasis was about our need to walk by the Spirit as individuals fulfilling the law of Christ by loving the brothers. But in this chapter, his emphasis will be to instruct the church on what it looks like to walk together by the Spirit, bearing burdens and carrying loads in ways that fulfill the law of Christ as a body of believers who are both corporately and individually accountable to God and to one another. We're so glad you've joined us for another podcast. If you haven't already, go grab your Bibles and join us for this next section of Paul's amazing letter. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com for a wealth of resources for those who are questioning or leaving Adventism or for concerned Christians who just want to learn more about the organization. While you're there, be sure to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. And there's a place to donate to the ministry as well if you'd like to come alongside Lamb with your financial support. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to receive notifications of all newly published episodes. And please leave a review wherever you listen. All right, Colleen. So here's my question for you. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about bearing one another's burdens. Mm -hmm. As an Adventist, how did you see that play out in the Adventist organization? How did people bear one another's burdens? Well, in my experience, Mm -hmm. I can't remember it. I mean, I can't remember burden bearing in a very specific way. I I remember a lot of avoiding letting people know you had a burden or trying to play it off if it, you had a visible burden, like when I went through a divorce. And I intuitively knew that that marked me as a dangerous and vulnerable woman. And I had to protect myself from women and from men in different ways. It was a very strange time. I don't remember burden bearing. I do have such an interesting memory from, I was a, a probably about 10. I had an uncle, my dad's o- older brother, who was an Adventist pastor, and he was actually a very kind man. And I remember him telling my parents on a visit, there was a couple in one of his churches where I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, the wife was divorcing the husband and it was scandalous. She had done something and everybody knew and she had, you know, not been faithful or was ditching her husband or something. And I remember my uncle saying, 
but nobody is asking the question what was going on behind closed doors. He said he knew that the husband had been unkind and unfaithful to her in various ways. And he said nobody, because the man had a name in the organization, in the Adventist organization, nobody was asking about him. They were all criticizing her. And he knew that it was not solely her fault. And he was deeply distressed that she was being blamed for the whole thing. That's more what I remember about burdens. It was the side of the family that had the the most power or the money or the prestige within the organization who was sort of cut some slack and the people who didn't matter so much could be blamed for whatever touched them. What about you, Nikki? What did you see? If we defined burden bearing here as a cancer diagnosis or um, maybe even obesity. (laughs) Yeah, there were things in Adventism programs for people like that. Uh But the context of this letter is talking about people who've been overtaken by sin. Right. And the only sin we ever heard about in Adventism was the kind that couldn't be covered. Right. The kind that leaked out. So like in that situation, the obvious reality that she was leaving her husband. And even in families, you know, the families are all put together until it's not not. (laughs) and it's unavoidable, Mm -hmm. you know, it can no longer be hidden. I do remember when I came back to California, I was 19 years old. I had been living in a really broken way and I had a lot of shame. I was going to change and I was going to come and give my life back to Adventism. Mm-hmm. I would have said back to God, but I thought that meant being a good Adventist. Right. So I came to stay with my dad and stepmom. And I was told when I came back that I was not to talk about my past, especially with my oh, younger wow. siblings, because they didn't want me to be a bad influence on them. And so I was just, I was starting over. It didn't matter what happened or what I'd been through or what I'd done. And I think it was, uh, in their eyes, grace. Oh, I'm sure they would have called it that. But to me, it felt like a prison. I didn't know how to be redeemed. I didn't know how to heal. I didn't know how to work through the stuff I needed to work through because we were just pretending it wasn't real. Right. And I didn't know where I fit because I wasn't one of those kids that went up through academy and they were did you know a year on an island teaching English. <laughs> and yes. So it was a lot of kind of just keeping it to myself and doing Sabbath and serving where I could and kind of making good life choices and making a better life for myself. And I did all those things, but I remained lonely and broken inside. And I remember, I know this is a long answer. No, it's okay. But I remember going to Trinity for the first time, mm-hmm. Christian church. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and we were listening to someone talking up front. And I pulled out the folder I'd been handed when I walked in and I opened it up to see who was talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't tell me who was talking. In fact, mm-hmm. it said nothing about who was up front. No, I didn't but- know who was leading worship. I didn't know who decorated the church, who was in charge <laughs> of the lights or the recordings or even who was going to preach. I didn't have the schedule. I didn't know when I was supposed to sit and stand for the organ. I didn't know anything. There was no instructions. Yeah, It was full of ministries that went on all week long, light and power, 
for the developmentally disabled. There was sexual healing. There was uh, post-abortion recovery. There were Bible studies for women and and for men and for mothers with babies. And there was just stuff going on all the time, serving one another and support groups, divorce recovery, grief recovery. I can't even remember all of it, but I remember sitting there crying. Sure. Because this was a place where humans came broken before the Lord, not competing, not looking for the spotlight, but coming with their burdens together. It wasn't even just, here's a book for that struggle, or here's a cooking class. (laughs) (laughs) So that struck me, and I became even more aware of the fact that Adventism demanded hiding. The body of Christ encourages healing. Something you said reminded me that something I heard frequently from a close family member for years was, let's just go on and forget the past and start over. Mm -hmm. You can't do that because the past has made you who you are today. And if there's no honest facing the burden of your life with somebody, there's no actual ability to completely forgive, to reconcile, to restore. And Adventism taught us to just put on a nice happy face and go on as if the past hadn't existed. And yet we were always going to be marked by that past. Yeah. And what do you do with all the PTSD inside if you never admit what happened? And you go on like that long enough and you don't even realize when all of that PTSD is actually what's guiding your life. Right. It's what's influencing your choices and infecting your marriage and your parenting and propagating the dysfunction generation after generation. And you know what I've started to realize as time has gone on is that that warping of my view of reality, which is you put your best foot forward and keep your chin up and keep your nose clean, as my dad would have said, and walk the best you can, that is not walking by the Spirit. In an Adventist setting, we didn't know what it meant to be born again. Mm -mm. We didn't know what it meant to walk by the Spirit. All we could do was try to keep the law. So, I'm reading the Bible as an Adventist through the lens of my Adventist worldview and the lens of my PTSD and whatever else was affecting me. So, I'm sitting here looking at these words, and as an Adventist, I would have seen bear one another's burdens as a should that would have brought me a lot of guilt if I didn't feel like I was helping the people that expected me to help them. Yeah. And and wouldn't you say too, that a part of the Adventist culture of bearing one another's burdens is collecting gold stars for your crown. Even if you look at the public relations for a lot of their medical work, Mm -hmm. you know, look what we've done, look at who we've helped. This is our fruit. Look at how great we are at helping you with your blood pressure. Look at Loma Linda's uh, motto, continuing the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And they don't even serve the infallible, eternal, omniscient, omnipresent Jesus of the Bible. His ministry on earth was not to teach and heal. His ministry on earth was to die for our sin. Mm-hmm. It's a great PR ploy, but it is not truth. So, as we look at this passage, these five verses out of Galatians, would you read them for us, Nikki, and we'll talk our way through them because it looks completely different, inside out, upside down, 180 degrees different from what it looked like in the past. And it's hard to start to see that, but I realize that when we know Jesus, even the words He gave us in His Word are new. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and I'm reading from the NASB 1995 edition. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Thank you. So, Nikki, why don't we start with that first word, brethren? Okay. Because that tells us who Paul is writing to. And as an Adventist, I thought, as I've said before, that every single command in the New Testament and Old was for me, and I had to try my very best to do them to the best of my ability in order to be pleasing to God and to prove that I loved Him. Mm-hmm. Who is he writing to? Who are the brethren? Believers in Christ. Believers in the true gospel. He's speaking to the church. Yes. And what marks the church? How do we know that we're a true brother? We've been born again. And we know that we're born again when what happens? When we believe, when we place our trust in Christ, we know it. You know, I've heard people say, oh, I don't feel anything. But that's not trust. That's That's looking for evidence. Yes. We trust the words of Scripture. And the words of Scripture say when you believe the gospel of truth, you're born again. Yes. And we're born of the Spirit. We're sealed with the Spirit. He never leaves us when we've truly trusted Jesus. And John 1.12 tells us that we're born of God. And then on top of being literally born again and created new, what does God do for us in Romans 8? We're adopted. We're adopted. (laughs) So there's a legal ownership and giving us his official name and his reputation even. You know, we carry him in the world. He gives us his spirit. He gives us the righteousness of God through Christ. It's a completely new reality. And a new family, a new definition of family. And I think that's the really important part here. When we become followers of Jesus, we really are, as Colossians 1.13 tells us, transferred by God Himself out of the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Do you remember that moment? It's recorded in both Mark and Matthew, where Jesus is with His disciples and somebody comes to Him and says, Behold, your mother and brothers are outside, and they want to speak to you. And He replied to the man who told Him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying here? He's redefining family. Totally is. Now, is he meaning here that when we're born again, we can ignore the rest of our family who's not born again? What is that relationship about? It's almost like the accusation, you know, well, now you can go and lie and cheat and steal. Exactly. (laughs) That's not what's happening here. He's giving us the truth. I mean, this is reality. We are a part of a different family. That doesn't mean that he has severed us from our kinsmen. Right. That's different. And so there's something additional and superior Mm -hmm. because he also says in scripture, anyone who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. 
or anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he also says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword to divide mother against daughter. And I can't quote that whole passage, but several different relationships. Truth is a sword and Jesus is is truth. (laughs) And so when Paul is writing, as he is in all his epistles where he gives commands to the believers, he's writing to those who are born again, who are part of the body of Christ. And I just have to refer to the sermon I heard last Sunday preached by our pastor, Gary Enrig, as he's preaching through the book of Ephesians. And he was preaching from the first part of Ephesians 3. And he said, I mean, this is not new, right? It's not a new idea, but it was so profound. It just connected with a lot of ideas that I had already been thinking in my head. When he said, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from death and sent the Holy Spirit, he created something completely new, the church. The church, those who are born again, are not a continuation of Old Testament Israel. Israel was not the Old Testament church. Israel was Israel. And and Gary made this point. Israel was Israel. The church is new. And it's a separate body with our own function, our own job, our own identity. We are born of God, indwelt permanently when we believe by the Holy Spirit. And we are united with one another in Christ through His Spirit. And it helps me to understand when I think about Ephesians 5, where Paul explains that Christ is the head of the church and we are the body of Christ. That's a metaphor to be sure, but it's real. We who believe are His body and we do His literal physical work in the world with Him guiding us. So, this is the body to whom Paul is writing. He's not writing to just people in general. And as an Adventist, I didn't even know I was part of the world, but I wasn't born again. And these commands just make no sense when you're not born again. Mm-mm. I remember when it really sunk in for me, I was reading out of Ephesians and it talks about the saints being the inheritance of Christ. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm a co-heir. His inheritance is my inheritance. And that means the body of Christ is mine now. Y'all are my family right now. <laughs> and the law of Christ lays out for us how we guard our inheritance. That is well said. The law of Christ lays out how we guard our inheritance. And this is just a good place to insert what we also talked about before, but I think it's helpful to remind ourselves. This entire book of Galatians has been Paul explaining that you can't mix the law with the gospel when you're born again. When you are born again and ushered into the body of Christ, you can't go back and pick up the law and bring it along because the law is fulfilled in Christ. This book is being written to a church that was being tempted with legalism. Now, you can say, oh, I'm not a legalist. I just do this to prove I love God. But no, Paul is saying that this is legalism because you're using the law as your authority for doing the Sabbath, as your authority for doing the food laws. That is not coming out of the grace of Christ and the new birth. Paul is writing in this book to a church that's being tempted to be legalists, and he is explaining here in this chapter, he's going to talk about the law of Christ being what we live by now. 
What's really interesting to me, I have to say, I hadn't thought about it this way until we had a conversation with a person who was investigating his dabbling in Adventism. It's a Christian person from Australia, actually, and he'd been dabbling with Adventist beliefs, and we had a conversation not too long ago, and he pointed out that Colossians 1 and 2 were the books written to a licentious church. Now, that's actually a really interesting thing because it dawned on me, that's what we're always accused of. When we leave Adventism, the first question is, well, what are you going to do about the Sabbath? Are you now free to cheat and steal and commit adultery? And eat ham. And eat ham. (laughs) (laughs) The licentious church is the church, like in Corinth, where people were not going back to the law, but they were just indulging the flesh. Galatia here was being tempted to go to the law and control the flesh with the law. Neither one of those is that third way, the law of the Spirit, the way of the Spirit. And it's so interesting to me that it was in these two books, the book to the licentious church and the book to the legalistic church, those are the two places where Paul clearly names the law of Christ. The law of the Spirit is the answer to both licentiousness and legalism. And interestingly, both licentiousness and legalism are the flesh. The law of the Spirit is when we're born again and we are in submission to Jesus. So he goes on to say in that first verse, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. There's a lot there, isn't there? There sure is. (laughs) One of the first things that was interesting to me is that word caught. If anyone is caught in any trespass, and even the word trespass is interesting. So the Greek word for caught, it means overtaken. It's almost like a surprise. It's not intentional. It's Mm -hmm. it's an overtaking. And then trespass is literally a falling aside or beside. It's a, a stumbling on something. Paul is saying if anybody is overtaken... And stumbles. This is somebody who is not out licentiously living in sin and indulging the flesh. This is someone who, according to the context, is trying to outrun sin. Right. (laughs) They're born again. Yes. And they're they're battling with sin because born again believers don't like their sin. (laughs) Right. And we still have a law of sin in our flesh. Yes. Romans 7. Yes. And so this is a person who is caught, overtaken, and they fumble. And Paul is calling those who are spiritually sound to come and to restore the person in a spirit of gentleness. You know, that reminds me of such a sweet illustration of this principle that J. Vernon McGee had in his commentary on this passage. He told about a pastor some time ago who had come out of a past of alcoholism, had become a Christian, and had become a pastor. And he had been under an extreme amount of stress with his job, and one night, he got drunk. He was drinking, and he drank too much, and he got drunk, and the next morning, he was devastated. He was stricken, and he called his deacons, and he said, please allow me to resign. I have stumbled. I became drunk last night. That is against God's will for me, and you need to let me resign. And those deacons rallied around him and said, no, we are praying for you you're not resigning. We're going to restore you with prayer and support. And so they circled around him. They prayed for him. 
the man repented, and his whole church the following Sunday said they had never heard a sermon with such depth and profundity. And I thought, that is such a great example. Mm -hmm. It may be a little extreme compared to some of our lives, but it was such an example of what Paul is talking about here. We restore the one who stumbles. This is not talking about a profligate sinner who's just trying to fit in and is trying to hide his sin. No, this is somebody who's a believer. Yeah, this is not codependently coming alongside someone and trying to make it easy for them to get away with the sin in their life. Exactly. The word for restore, uh, actually, J. Vernon McGee said (laughs) that the word for restore in this verse is a verb, which means to set a broken bone. I loved that. Yeah, that was that was really a great picture of what Paul is calling us to in each other's lives. Another commentator, Dehan, wrote, This brother was overtaken, implying that he was trying to get away from it, trying to avoid it, and because of weakness, failure of prayer or failure to look to the Lord for victory was overtaken. It was not deliberate sinning, but being overcome in a moment of weakness. The first verse of Galatians 6 is a solemn warning against legality and sitting in judgment upon weak, stumbling believers. And it made me think of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. He said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Don't people like to quote that? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Let's read on. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. This is important. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying don't deal with each other. No, he's not. (laughs) He's not saying, look away, don't judge. Who are you to say anything? Right. He's saying, examine yourself. Yes. Deal with yourself. Deal with your own log, your own struggle, your own sin. And you do that with God, right? And then you're able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And isn't that like Corinthians? You know, the God of mercy who comforts us teaches us how to comfort others with the same comfort. And I think that's all kind of part of that sanctification. It's all part of the same picture. I loved that definition of the restore being like to set a broken bone. I remember when I broke my leg in college, at the end of the ski season, after completing all my lessons, 500 feet from the lodge, there it went. (laughs) But I learned a lot about broken bones after that. And one of the things I learned is that when a bone heals... The scar tissue that forms in a broken bone actually is stronger than the original bone. Now, it doesn't mean you want to go and break all your bones, <laughs> but I find that really interesting because if we use that same metaphor of the broken bone, setting a broken bone for restoring a person caught in sin, there's something really profound about that. Yeah. When we face our sin and when we have true brothers and sisters in Christ who come alongside and pray for us like that pastor, who support us, who help us be accountable and we trust the Lord with those weaknesses and sins that keep pushing us over the edge of the flesh, we become stronger there, almost stronger than if we had never had the failure. And, you know, I think of that sometimes when I think about what God does when He restores our Adventism and plants us in the body of Christ. We don't just come from ground zero neutral and learn about Him. We have to unlearn 
a whole worldview, a whole lifetime of habits, a whole lifetime of dynamics socially and religiously. And the Lord is the one who helps us do that. He sends brothers and sisters alongside to help us understand His Word. And as we start to see the Word through the lens of Jesus instead of the lens of Ellen, we become more discerning, more clear, more at rest in the Savior (laughs) than if we had never had to undo all that. Yeah, I'm thankful for it. I am too. I feel like I understand scripture and understand the gospel in ways I never would have if I hadn't had to dig my way out of such a dark deception. The second part of that verse, he says, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. It takes us back to what Jesus said in Matthew. He's talking about the way in which we come alongside each other. And there is a temptation when you are helping somebody who's struggling, there's a temptation to feel pride. Yes. I've seen it played out. We, I think we all experience, hey, this person needs me. I have something to offer. It <laughs> might start out just exciting, like God's allowed me to be a part of this. And if we don't keep that in check, that can swell into pride. We can find ourselves pursuing good deeds from a completely inside out motive without even realizing it. Yeah. It is exciting when God calls us to come alongside people and we know that there's this clear thing that God's doing and letting us be a part of, but we have to approach that in a spirit of humility, aware of our own sin. And sometimes it also involves being aware that we are dealing with somebody in sin. It's not just that we have something to offer, but that we actually, by helping somebody who is bearing a burden of sin, we are exposing ourselves to the sin. It reminds me of Jude. At the end of the book of Jude, He says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Mm -hmm. To be sure, Paul is speaking in Galatians of the body of believers. Jude's counsel here is not necessarily just about us dealing with unbelievers. It can be dealing with things that are inside the church, whether we're sure or not that a person is a true believer. We always have to approach it with a spirit of humility, trusting the Lord, asking Him to protect us and keep us faithful, because we all know how easy it is to be deceived by our own flesh, by another person's need, and to be blind to our own weaknesses that make us vulnerable to become, like you might want to say, codependent or enmeshed with somebody, and not even realize that we're taking on, somehow covering up their sin instead of keeping ourselves accountable to God in them too. Yeah, I think that is the, that's the clincher right there. Who are you doing this for? For sure, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and for sure, we want to serve and come alongside them. But all of our deeds are ours before God. I mean, they will be examined by Him, and we do this because we love Him. And we do it because He's asked us to. We are His body on earth, and When he puts us in his body and our fellow brothers and sisters are coming under some sort of attack or temptation, and we are there to help hold them accountable, that's the work of Christ in us. We're doing it because we love him, but we're doing it because we love our brothers and because he has commanded us to. And you know, he does 
give us the work he's prepared in advance for us to do. And our job is to trust him. When he puts us in the proximity of somebody who needs our help, we trust him to show us how to do that, how to love them for him, not just for their sake, not for our sake, but for him. Mm -hmm. And he's the one who knows what we need to do. We trust him. So in verse two, going on from this in the same vein, he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill, and here it is, the law of Christ. Nikki, what does that mean, bear one another's burdens? We talked earlier about the fact that Paul uses two words for burdens in this section, and I think it's important to talk about that because this is a section about which some people say, oh, well, you see right there, the Bible contradicts itself. It says, bear one another's burdens, and in verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. So you want to talk about what it means to bear one another's burdens here. Yeah, so I, I think it's great that the translators here in the NASB use two different English words yeah, me too. that we will use interchangeably sometimes when we're speaking. This is an important uh, moment to pay attention to the words because words matter, right? Right. Bear one another's burdens. A burden literally refers to a heavy weight. It's more than our responsibility. It's more than our load, which right. is what the latter word refers to. The Greek word is Strong's number 922, and in the New Testament, I, I don't know if I'm saying it right, baros mm-hmm. is used only figuratively, meaning something pressing on one physically or emotionally. It was used in some Greek secular writings in a metaphorical sense to describe grief or misery. We know what a burden is. Absolutely. We've all had them. And the other word, which we'll come to more in verse 5, is, again, I don't know exactly how to say it. But in Greek, it is fortion, and it is a load to be borne, like, and I thought this was interesting, like a ship's cargo or like a child in the womb. Only the person carrying the child can carry the child. That's a burden you cannot share. We'll talk more about that as we come to verse 5. But in verse 2, when he says, bear one another's burdens, he's talking about these heavy things that happen to us in this life. And it's interesting, too, this comes after he has just explained the fruit of the Spirit. Exactly. This is how we bear one another's burdens, by the Spirit and by the fruit of the Spirit. And that ought to mark how we interact with each other. When there is suffering and struggling, we come alongside them with love and patience and kindness and gentleness and meekness. Right. You know, I have a memory that I think will mark the rest of my life in an indelible way. It was three years ago when I had a knee replacement surgery. And Nikki, you know this very well because you were there. For two weeks, you and our friend Cheryl Granger came to the house every day and sat with me. (laughs) And you guys shopped for food and you made food and you did the laundry. And it was a great comfort to Richard and to me. And even though I was sort of out of it a lot, I was sleeping a lot, I remember how comforting it was to have you there. And for a year after that, you came once a week and did my vacuuming. Well, my knee healed enough to do the torquing movements of vacuuming. It was such a blessing. And I look back on that as a time of surprising sweetness and comfort. It was so comforting to me to have you there. I never experienced anything like that (laughs) as an Adventist. And, you know, I lived through a lot of weirdness as an Adventist, but I just thank you again for that. Well, you know, I remember leading up to that surgery, the conversations that we had 
Cheryl and I both about wanting you to let us come and help you because <laughs> that was not something we were accustomed to as Adventists. No, you don't ask wasn't. for help. Mm-mm. And I know for both of us, it was a comfort to us to be there. And that's part of being in the body of Christ. Yes. The Lord moves us. He gives us desires. It's His work in and through all of us together. If you find yourself checking off a list of, you know, oh, I have to do this and this and this and this to, to love my neighbor and my brother, you might be doing your deeds in the flesh. That's right. The Lord will instruct and lead and reveal where He wants you. That doesn't mean that we just, you know, only do the stuff that's really right in front of our face. Right. Because we are commanded to do certain things. But there's something far more organic about it than I think a lot of people are willing to accept. I agree with that. And I think about the fact of how comforting it was to me how helpful and comforting it was to Richard to have you here. And then to hear you and Cheryl both still say those were comforting times for you. That's the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That to me is an evidence of what the Lord does when we are walking in His will and accepting His provision for us. His provision for me was you guys coming and helping and just sitting And his provision for you was to have us all there together in the spirit. And I can't explain that, but it's nothing we can construct. Yeah. It's his doing. So here in this verse, he talks again about fulfilling the law of Christ. And in Galatians 5.14, he said, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're going back again to what seems esoteric, I think, walking in love with your brother and sister is fulfilling the law of Christ. That's not a list. (laughs) No, it is not a list. It's just not. I love what Austin said on his website, Precept Austin. (laughs) He says, notice the irony. He had been criticizing those who advocated keeping the law as a means of salvation. And here mentions fulfilling the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. The former legalists rely on their flesh, but the latter can only fulfill the law of Christ by reliance on the Holy Spirit. The former is natural. The latter is supernatural. Instead of shouldering the burden of legalism, get under each other's burdens and fulfill the law of love, which in fact sums up the whole Old Testament law. It does. In Romans 13, 8 to 10, Paul says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. (laughs) And I know as an Adventist, I would think, yeah, yeah, yeah. The last six of the Ten Commandments are the law of love love your neighbor as yourself. That's not what he means here. He is saying anything that you know is a good deed, anything that you do for another person out of love is fulfilling the law. But the love he's talking about is a very specific love. It's not human love. It's the love that comes from God. It's the love that gives us new birth. It's the love that puts His Spirit in us. That's the only way we even know what to do for another. Yeah, it's a love defined by Scripture, which in human terms doesn't always feel loving because it isn't always 
affirming. That's a very good point, actually. And isn't it interesting how that word affirming has been taken and redefined in today's culture? So then in verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. I spent a lot of time on that verse. I think that a lot of us who have walked in Adventism and even in the body of Christ have experienced interacting with people who are trying to help us, (laughs) who think they are something. Yes. And who make sure we know that as they help. And it usually tends to increase shame in the one who needs the help and to bolster pride in the one doing the helping. And I think Paul is telling us, keep a check on yourself. When the Lord gives us someone to love for him, that is nothing to do with saying we have more holiness, more authority, more right to be respected. We're all part of the body of equal value. Paul is reminding us here, We can't compare ourselves to each other. We only get our identity from the Lord. The Lord gives us His work. The Lord gives us His identity. Our job is to be faithful in submission to Christ as He is faithful to keep His promises to us. You know, Nikki, we only answer to Him. We answer to Him. I mean, I think so often of David saying after his sin with Bathsheba, Against you, O Lord, have I sinned. He obviously had sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, whom he had killed in battle. Mm -hmm. He obviously sinned against the son that was born to them, that died, that was deprived of life as a result of his sin. He sinned against his nation by not going to battle and indulging in Bathsheba when he shouldn't have. And yet the Lord redeemed that because David repented and David acknowledged that his sin ultimately was to God. And I think that's the thing that as an Adventist, I didn't understand because I didn't understand I was depraved. I didn't understand that there was nothing in me at all, even my good impulses that were truly good. Everything that came out of me naturally was tainted. And when the Lord brings us to life, we answer to the one who gives us that life. And yes, we have to be accountable to one another. And yes, we have to repent if we hurt one another. But the ultimate sin is against the Lord, and we can't compare ourselves to each other. Yeah, you know, this again presupposes that a person understands the nature of humanity because there's no reason to be proud when you understand that you are what you are by the grace of God alone. Anything good in your life, any sin you've overcome, any way in which you know you've grown in the Lord, that's all because of His grace and His sanctification, His work. And so being constantly aware of that keeps our pride in check. Yeah. One commentator, to summarize him, said, self-conceit is the chief hindrance to forbearance and sympathy towards our fellow men. He moves on in verse four, basically carrying out the same idea. And he says, but each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. So, Nikki, how do you understand that now? As an Adventist, that was a little confusing. Like, how do you boast in your own self? What is he talking about here? 
So Paul's just been talking about following the Spirit and not giving the flesh any opportunity for sin, but walking by the Spirit. And so when we examine our work, we're examining whether we are walking by the Spirit or we're indulging the flesh. When we're walking by the Spirit, now we can have reason for feeling confident about the work we're doing. We're doing it in the Lord. We're doing it for the Lord because He's commanded us and... He has a way of making sure we know he does. he's there, present with us, helping us. And so it's not, I'm doing this apart from God. It's my work here is quality work. It's done in the Lord. It's not, look, I'm better than him. Compared to that guy, I'm more righteous. And remember, he had just said, we talked about this last week, he'd said, let's not envy one another and boast right. and challenge one another. So there's no comparison. If right. your work's not being done in the flesh, you're not standing there thinking, at least I'm better than that guy. This passage reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, where he was talking to this licentious church about their lack of respect for one another in the body of Christ when they came to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 32, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I have to pause here because as an Adventist, that was often an issue. Oh, have I confessed every sin? If I don't, I'm drinking in an unworthy manner. No, in the context, Paul is talking about being disrespectful to one another. Some people coming to these um, Lord's suppers hungry and pushing ahead and eating and drinking before the others were able to eat and not respecting one another. That was the context. So he's saying, whoever drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And to be honest, you can read that one of two ways and both are correct, either in terms of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper or in terms of the body of Christ, who is the body of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. I mean, that's a pretty profound comment. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So Paul is saying here, if we examined our own motives before we acted out of the flesh, we could avoid the discipline of the Lord. And as he's telling the Corinthians, that discipline can include becoming sick and even some of them falling asleep early, meaning they died. Mm-hmm. So that's severe discipline. But this is what he means when he says, examine yourselves. We don't compare ourselves to one another. None of us deserves better treatment than another. We're equal in the sight of God. We are all part of the body of equal value in the Lord. And our job is to respect one another as we submit to the, our head, who is the Lord Jesus. And he's the one who gives us our identity and our definition. So then in verse five, he says, for each one will bear his own load. And the word, as you mentioned, is about personal responsibility. It's something that you can't share. It can't be transferred. Right. We're each responsible to, and we're going to give God an account for how we bear the load that he gives us. And when we think about this verse, you have the person caught in sin. They have their own load. 
and you have the person bearing the burden of the one caught in sin with them, and that's their load. God gives them the responsibility. He gives us the responsibility to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ, and he gives us the responsibility that when we're caught in sin, like that pastor, we go before the Lord and before our brothers, we confess that, and we ask for help. Paul said in Romans chapter 14 in verses 10 to 13, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. So as I look back on these first five verses, there's some summary statements that I've thought of. First of all, we are accountable to the one who loves us and saves us and gives us the new birth. He adopts us. He gives us our identity. We are to be accountable to God and answerable to God for all we have done and what we are. We are accountable to Him even for the inner reactions and emotions and responses that we automatically deliver to one another. We now, because we are born again, have the ability finally to choose to submit to Him before we act in the flesh, and we're accountable for that. And that includes helping one another bear their burdens when they're suffering. We stay submitted to God, knowing that in His eyes we cannot be diminished or disrespected, even if others diminish us or disrespect us. We don't need to defend ourselves to prove ourselves to Him. Instead, we can step back, we allow Him to work in our brothers and sisters, even when they misunderstand or mistreat us. We trust Him. It also means we maintain proper boundaries. We don't become enmeshed with another person's sin. We trust God. We bear the burdens He gives us to bear, but we also have to allow the Lord to be the Holy Spirit to the other person. In this way, we're able to really, truly forgive one another. We give to God the sins done against us. We don't hold the unrepentant or the persistent sinner in eternal debt to us because they can't give us what they should. We have to surrender to God whatever it is we think the other people in the body should be giving us. The Lord is the one who fills our hearts. The Lord is the one who fills our needs. And He brings us to each other to help support and to remind each other of the Lord's love. But we can forgive one another when they don't manage to live up to what we expected of them, because now we trust the Lord to fill us. We trust God to be what we need, and we can let the other off the hook if they're suffering so much that they can't give us everything they should. And if you are listening to this, and you have never understood the love of God, who gives you an identity in Christ and fills you with Himself, so that you can be His presence in the world, in the body of Christ, supporting and loving those He puts in your life. I just challenge you to come and look again at the cross of the Lord Jesus, where He took your sins. Admit to Him that you need a Savior, that you can't be good, that you can't love properly, and trust the Lord who has paid for your sin, 
who has been buried and who has raised from the dead and broken the curse of sin. And when you trust him, he will give you his own resurrection life and you'll be safe for eternity. And I challenge you to trust the Lord and take him at his word and to experience that transformation. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com for a wealth of resources for those questioning or leaving Adventism or for concerned Christians who want to learn more about the organization. Be sure to sign up for weekly emails delivering new material to your inbox every Friday. And please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and leave a review. And join us next week as we continue our walk through this last chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll see you then.